get them done. All right, Galatians chapter 3. We're going to finish chapter 3. And uh, I don't know if any... I hope you read, at least read the... I'm really sorry about not getting the outline out. I will. I won't let that happen again. I must not have because none of y'all got it, but I I clearly remember doing it. So anyway, what what we're going to do is we're going to start in verse 15, go to the end of this chapter, and I'm just going to take it, we're going to take it apart piece by piece, uh, verse by verse, and um, we're going to explain what he's talking about because there's some language in here that can get a little confusing if if we don't kind of understand. And so let me just give you the point of this passage first, and that way we'll all know what we're talking about. And we can just work from there. The point is that it, the, the very last point that he made, the last class we're in, was that we are the heirs of Abraham's promise. Y'all remember that? That we who are in Jesus, uh, we who have trusted Christ, we have the fulfillment of the promises that were made way, way back when to Abraham. And so, therefore, we're all, we only, the people who are in Christ are actually the heirs to the promise, not the people who are the the physical descendants of Abraham. Y'all with me? Y'all remember that? And the law cannot invalidate the promise. That was, that's kind of where we're going to be today. He, He declared at the very end of the last section that we are heirs to the promise, which is heirs to the inheritance of Abraham, which means that we're right with God, basically. Uh, We're heirs to that promise through Jesus Christ. Uh, And what he's going to do here in this section, he's going to say, the law, which came much later than Abraham, cannot invalidate the promise that we've been given. Uh, If he's saying... Remember that the Judaizers had come in and they'd said, you know what, Jesus is great, Jesus is wonderful, Uh, we believe in Jesus too, but you have to keep the law in order to truly be right with God. And Paul's point in this passage is going to be, no, uh, from even the time of Abraham, even before there was a law, men were right with God and you inherit the covenant, the promise of the covenant from Abraham uh, without the law, therefore, the law cannot be a factor in your justification. You know what justification means? I I try not to use them big words, but some of these words we need to we need to know. I know you've heard it before. Justification. Anybody know what justification is? When I am justified, I am what? Just as if I'd never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's true. That's true. That's a that's a that's a common deal, uh, and that's an easy way to remember it. Uh, yeah, I'm saying it, that's right. You are the the thing that you need to know though is that you are not it's not that you are made righteous. It's that you have been declared righteous. See what I mean? It's like God is still making you. You know what I mean? He's still that's called sanctification, him making and molding you into who he wants you to be. But justification means you have a stamp over your life on your account that says perfect. Even though in my walk I'm not yet perfect. Make sense? And so what Paul is going to say here through the whole text is your justification, what makes you right, what makes you declared righteous, is not how or why or when you keep the law, but it's have you received the promise, the covenant from Abraham? And so he's going to talk about covenants. Verse 15, he's going to use a human example first. He says, brethren, I speak after the manner of men. He's saying I'm using a human example. 
He said, though it be but even... Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. He's saying, even in man-made covenants, once it's ratified, once the stamp's put down, if you want to put it in terms of today, once the lawyer signs off on it, contract can't be changed, right? Can't be added to, can't be whatever. Now, uh, whenever I talk about this, what Paul's using here as an example, somebody always brings up, well, wait a minute, you can kind of change it too. If you got a good lawyer and you, you know, you kind of whatever, you can do that. But what Paul's talking about here is not, it's more like uh, the word covenant can be translated testament as well. So it's more like a last will and testament. So if, if, if so-and-so, if Jimmy leaves all his stuff to me, right, and he dies and all his stuff is left to me, once we review the will, once the will is ratified and the lawyer says, this is what it is, the judge says, or whatever, once it's ratified, nobody can change that. It's done. You know, Jimmy's dead, so he can't make changes. The lawyer has ratified it. It's been confirmed. It's a done deal. You can't change it. So he says, even in human covenants, you can't change. Once it's been, once it's been confirmed, once it's been ratified, once it's been accepted, you can't change those things. And so, verse 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed, he's going to explain the Abraham covenant. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to the seed, which is Christ. He said to Abraham, he made the promise, To thy seed I will give blessing. To thy seed I will give the land. To thy seed I will give you know, all that. I will make them great nations. I will whatever. And so what's Paul's argument here? Who is the seed? Jesus. Jesus is the seed. He says, Paul says, he didn't. God didn't make the promise to Abraham to the seeds, plural. To saying, all your many whatever, you know, was going to inherit. He said one, the seed. And I know that the seed can also be used in plural, but... It's used in the plural in the fact that we are in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Uh, let me say it again. Uh, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Abraham's, the promise to Abraham. All the people who are in Jesus Christ are re receptors, receivers, Recipient. beneficiaries, recipients. recipients. That's what I was looking for. Recipients of that covenant promise. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? What does that mean for y'all and me today? That we are heirs to the promise that God gave Abraham so many thousands of years ago. Anybody want to take a stab at it? There's no, I'm not looking for anything specific. I just want to know what does that mean for you and me today to see? You ever heard that song? Father Abraham and many sons, many sons had nobody's heard that song. I am one of them, and so are you. Yeah, you ever thought about I am one of them? I'm a son of Abraham. What is that? What's significant about that? Anybody want to take a stab? But that promise is still in effect to us today. The promise is still in effect. What promise? You're right. That we'll have His blessings. That we are blessed of the Lord. That will be the world will be blessed through us, and that we will be blessed. We have relationship with God. Abraham was uh, uh, right with God because of his faith. Yeah. And that anybody else? You just said what you said. Dad, she took your answer. No. You just, just 
Oh, I did? Okay, and so... Huh? Hope. Hope. Yeah, that you have hope, that we have hope. I can help if there's no use in looking forward to anything, but that kind of solidifies that, yeah, there is something coming. Sure. It's not just that, as far as Jews are God's chosen people, that we as Gentiles are still God's seed. Yeah, you got different views. And so everybody who doesn't agree with me is wrong. No, I'm just kidding. No, I'm really serious. But uh, no, there's two kinds of people that will answer that question two different ways. One kind that's not me will say that just because your, your ethnicity is Jewish means that you're God's people. That's not me. Um, they, most of the time, there's some really radical views about it, but most of the time what they'll say is that God has kind of put those people to the side for a while and he's not dealing with them anymore. Right now he's doing the church and then when the church is gone, then he's going to go back to doing, you know, taking care of them. And, 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 uh, and Paul does say in Romans 11 that it seems like toward the end there will be a massive Jewish people that come to faith in Christ. But if you come to faith in Christ, then what does that make you? You know, makes you the church. <laughs> you know, and so the, if you're asking for my opinion, and this is what I believe the scripture teaches, and I can make a really darn good case for it, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the perfect Israel that it was always supposed to be. So all who are in Jesus Christ, whether they be Jew, Gentile, male, free, slave, whatever, all who are in Jesus Christ are God's perfect Israel. All the, all the promises that God made to ethnic national Israel are fulfilled in an ethnic national Israelite, and that's Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And so I'll say something, and it's going to be a little shocking. It's always shocking to people, but... Those folks over there that live in Palestine, Palestinian, the, the Israel over there has nothing to do with my salvation or how I think the world's going to turn out. I'm for Israel because that's the only democracy over there and I'm pro-democracy, you know, and they deserve the right to live and they deserve the right to have their own country. Boy, I could get into real deep waters right here. Um, but I'm not for them because God owes them something. See what I mean? No. If you go over there today, you're not even allowed to proselytize. You're not even allowed to. They do not stand for Christ. They do not stand with Christ. They do not acknowledge that Jesus is anything other than a, a teacher like Moses. And therefore, not my brothers and sisters. See what I mean? I'm not trying to get deep here. That makes me think of something else. A lot of the... Uh, preachers today, John Hagee, talk about using the term preacher loosely, I assume. <laughs> talking about, you know, that the U.S. needs to always stand to protect Israel because that is God's. If we do not, that, that God will, that, that God's kind of upset with Russia and, and of course, with the Germany, the Holocaust and all that, what they've done to Jewish people. Well, he, I'm sure he is because what they did was bad wrong. doesn't matter who it was. Right. Um, but but the, he's always talking about we need to stand with Israel. We need to stand with Jerusalem because when the U.S. turns their back on 
Right. If we want to get into the politics, I I stand with Israel in the midst of what's going on now because nobody deserves to have all the countries around them saying we're going to wipe you out. You know what I mean? So I, politically, I agree in all that, but it's not because God owes them. See what I mean? God's God's covenant people have been fulfilled in His covenant-bearing Son. Does that make sense? And so whether the early church in Acts was nothing but Jewish people. That was the remnant. Uh, God prophesied throughout the Old Testament that His people would turn and He would would divorce them, so to speak. But there would always be a remnant of people that would be recipients of His promise. And in the early church, that was only, there were no Gentiles in the early church. In Acts, from the first seven chapters, there are no Gentiles in the church whatsoever. All Jewish men, all Jewish women, all Jewish families. And then it was at Stephen's stoning that it spread. They, they were running for their life, so they spread out to other, other nations. And so, <coughs> Jesus Christ is God's perfect Israel. Okay? So Jesus is, he's the perfect David. He's the one who sits on David's throne. He's the embodiment of the temple. He's the embodiment of the sacrifice. He's the embodiment of the altar. He's the, he's the answer to all the questions. What does this mean in the Old Testament? And so when you're asking me, who is God's Israel? My answer is Jesus Christ. And anyone who is found in Jesus Christ is God's Israel. Does that make sense? And Paul makes that case here as well. He's going to say at the end, the very last verse, if you'll just go to the last, it's last two verses. It says, verse 28 says, there is neither, and he's talking about being right with God. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Jesus Christ. And if you be Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed. Heirs according to the promise. Now, does that mean there's no such thing as man and woman anymore or nothing like that? No, he's not. There are still Jewish people. There are still Gentile people. But he's talking about as far as being right with God and right relationship with God. Doesn't matter if you're Jewish. Doesn't matter if you're Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're male, female, slave, free. If you want to be right with God, if you want to be an heir to the promise of God, you have to be found in Jesus Christ. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile. Does that make sense? If you want a passage to study on how God has done away with that distinction, Jew, Gentile, study Ephesians chapter 2 from about verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And really follow the pronouns because he'll say, you may take time just to read it. Okay, if y'all don't care. Because this is a big question, and it's a very emotional question. Boy, you get somebody who really, you know, uh, you get in, you get in big trouble. Verse chapter two of Ephesians. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to emphasize different things. This is where he says you're saved by grace through faith. You know, at the, at the beginning of Ephesians. Chapter 2. Now look at verse 11. It says, Wherefore remember that you, being in times past Gentiles in the flesh. These are Ephesians. They're by flesh, by birth, they're Gentiles. In times past, you were Gentiles in the flesh, 
who are called uncircumcision, that's non-Jewish, by which is called the circumcision in the flesh made with hands. Who were calling them uncircumcision? The Jewish people were calling them uncircumcision. He says that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. What were we aliens from? No, yeah, but what does it say right there? Yeah, we were aliens from Israel. He says, and you were strangers from the covenants of promise. Who were the covenants given to? Israel. Right. Having no hope without God in the world. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were far off. Far off from what? From God. What did he just say? From the promises of the covenant, from the commonwealth of Israel, you were far off, are made nigh by what? The blood of Christ. He says, for he is our peace. He peace? He is our peace who has made both one. Both what? Made both Jew and Gentile one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. What is twain? In two. What are the two? Gentile. So in his flesh, he's made the two one. He says that that he he might reconcile both, who are both? Gentile. Unto God in one body by what? The cross. Having slain the empty there. And he came and preached peace to you which were far off and to them which were nigh. Okay, who's far off? And far off from what? Gentiles. Gentiles are far off from the covenant commonwealth of Israel. Who were the ones that were nigh that he preached to? The Jewish people that were in the commonwealth of Israel. Man, y'all are so smart. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints. I'm a fellow citizen with what saints? That's right. All the Old Testament saints. And the household of God and are built upon the foundation of prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together grown to holy. Got it? You see what I'm saying? So... That's, that's going to be Paul's theology through all of his epistles. Is that, hey, there's no more circumcision, uncircumcision. There's no more Jew-Gentile distinction. We're all one in Jesus Christ. And that was his problem with Peter. You're going to come the same way I came. You know, Peter, he said, remember the last time we, we, I don't know if it was the last time or the time before, he told Peter, he said, we're not centered Gentiles by nature. We're Jewish people. And he says, if we have to come by Christ, he says, then why are you adding extra laws onto them? And so, Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. That's what he's trying to get them to see, is that you're not adding to your, you're not adding to your relationship with God by keeping laws. Verse 17, back to Galatians chapter 3, says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God, talking about the Abrahamic covenant, in Christ, the law, which was 400 years, talking about the law, which was 400 years and 30 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. So what is he saying? If he's, he's saying, if God made this covenant with Abraham, and the covenant is made him right with God, you're telling me that God gave the law through Moses 400... I spit on you, I'm sorry, Miss Judy. 
430 years later. You notice I spit a lot when I talk. I think it's this big SpongeBob gap. It all comes out of the... Anyway. Uh, what was I saying? If I chew gum, it makes it worse. Because I don't have... Huh? Yeah. The law came 430 years after the covenant. So, if the law is needed to ratify the covenant, what happened to Abraham? He's in trouble. Because he's long dead. Long dead when the law came. He says the law that you're putting all the stock into came 430 years after Abraham was promised this by God. And you're saying that to inherit the promise of Abraham, we have to keep the law that Abraham didn't know anything about. Does that make sense? Now, the question that's popping into your mind right now, and rightfully so, and Paul's going to address it here in a minute, is, so what you're saying then, we don't have to worry about the law, law's no good, we don't have to... He's going to address that here momentarily. Um, Verse 18 says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. That's what we just said. If you're saying you get the inheritance by keeping the law, then Abraham was left out in the lurch because he didn't know about the whole thing. And it says, Abraham inherited it by the promise. And that's the same way you and I inherit it. And the, the application for us is that adding rule keeping, adding law, adding things to give us righteousness before God nullifies the promise. And we've seen that in Galatians before too. It says, if you add anything to the cross, you nullify the cross. If you add any of your works thinking that my works are making me righteous then you, you nullify the promise of God. Everything that we have in our standing with the Lord, with right, as far as righteousness, as far as uh, being right with God, as far as being uh, acceptable in His presence, is given through promise, and that promise is obtained through Jesus Christ. Make sense? Okay. So, are you saying the law is bad? That's, that, that is my next question. So, what do we do with this law? I mean, is the law, should we just chunk it in the trash and not worry about it? Um, and this is where many people get off balance. Because you'll have some people on one side saying, well, hey, we don't even have to keep the law no more. Blah, blah, blah. You know, we're not under the law. A lot of people use that phrase. We'll see it next week. Paul uses not under the law. A lot of people use the phrase not under the law to mean, hey, the law's in the trash can. We don't have to worry about it. Um, it is, is that really what, what he means? And then there's people on the other side that says, oh, no, you better keep the law. If you, don't, if you break the law, then you're not... You know, saved anymore? If you're you're not right with God, unless you're keeping the law, you gotta gotta keep it in balance here. He says, verse 19 says he asked that same question. He said, "Wherefore then serveth the law?" He said, "What's the purpose of the law then? If 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 it doesn't add to our justification, if it doesn't add to our righteousness, what good is it?" He says, "It was added 430 years after the promise was given. It was added because of transgression, and till is the word until." Until the seed, who is the seed? Jesus. Jesus should come to whom the promise was made. Who was the promise made to? It was made to Abraham, but it was fulfilled in Jesus. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. I'll explain that in a second. But what he's saying, he's saying the reason that we have the law, the reason the law was given was so that we could see it's a mirror that you stand before that shows you God's perfection and it shows you your sinfulness. The reason that we have the law is there's uh, 
several uses of the law. The, the number one thing is to show you your sin. Uh, Paul said in Romans 7, 7, he said, I would not have known covetousness if it had not been for the law that said thou shalt not covet. It says, but the law took you know, opportunity and it, when it came, I died because it revealed my sin to me. It revealed what I'm, what I'm doing is wrong. It showed me my sinfulness and it showed me God's uh, holiness. The law shows us God's person. It shows us who He is. The law is not just some uh, arbitrary standard that God set up and says, you know what, these folks need some laws. So here's some good ideas that we're going to do. No, the law shows who God is. God, God is perfection. God is perfect. And so when you're talking about, let's just take, for example, the Ten Commandments. When you're talking about those commandments, you're, you're talking about God's nature. You're talking about who He is. When He says, thou shalt not commit adultery, uh, it's not just, you know, hey, it's, it's a good idea that you don't commit adultery. It's God saying, you know what, I'm a God of perfection, a perfect love, perfect justice, perfect relationship. And when you go off and you disobey this, you dishonor me, you dishonor who I am. Somebody has rightly said that breaking the law, sinning, if you will put it that way, is cosmic treason. It's, it's rebelling against who God is. It's not just... Dang, I didn't keep the rules. I didn't keep the whatever. It's, it's saying, God, you are not the Lord of me. I'll do what I want to do. That's what sin is. That's what breaking the law is. And that's why it was added so it, it would show mankind who you are. You are a sinner by nature. Um, and then when, when Christ comes, Spirit comes, where the law now is written on our heart. It's written, it was written on Abraham's heart. Does that make sense? All right, he's going to explain it some more. Uh, verse 19, or yeah, verse 19, the whole mediator thing. Do I have time? Yeah, it's 10 3. That's some confusing language. It was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. What he's talking about right there is if, if you go back to Exodus to the giving of the law, some of y'all might not care about this, and this is just information, so. Just scrap it if you, you don't if it's not meaningful. Um, in Exodus, we don't have any kind of notion or any 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 uh, uh, writing about angels giving the law or anything like that. But there is in uh, you write these down if you want to Deuteronomy thirty three two, and these are all on the outline that's on the website that I was supposed to send to you that I didn't. So I'm sorry. Huh. I'll send it to you after class. Deuteronomy 33.2, Acts 7.53, when Stephen was giving his speech, he talked about it. And in Hebrews 2.2, he talks about the, the law being given by angels. So what, what it's talking about is there, was two, there were two mediators that mediated between God and man when God gave the law to men. God gave the law through angels to Moses. They were there. If you know the scene in Exodus, there was at the top of the mountain, there was thunder and lightning and smoke and, and it was just this big, di- you, know, the, the, you know, all these things. And, and the, the idea was that all the, God's holy ones were with Him when He gave the law. And the, God didn't give the law directly to the people. He gave the law to the people through a mediator and that mediator was Moses. And Moses came and brought the law to the, to the people. And so the point that he's making here is that the promise wasn't given through a mediator. It was given directly from God to mankind. There was no mediator. And that's why it says in verse 20, it says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now, this gets into, this gets into uh, 
the making of a covenant. The, if you're going to have a covenant between two people, if Miss Judy and I are going to make a covenant, we need a mediator to mediate the terms of the covenant because it's two parties involved. I'm going to do X. Miss Judy agrees to do Y. We're going to agree to do what each one's going to do. We have a mediator come ratify the covenant. Therefore, I'm bound to do what I said. Miss Judy's bound to do what she said. Make sense? Understand? God did not make the covenant with Abraham that way. If you go back to Genesis 15, one of my favorite illustrations, my favorite stories in all of the Bible, is when God made His covenant with Abraham, He put no stipulation on Abraham. If you, uh, The way they made covenants back then was they would get together, and they're called... You don't care about what they're called. But uh, they would get together and they would take animals, birds... Uh, cattle, whatever, and they would split them in half and they would put half the animal on this side, half the animal on this side. And as we would come and sign a contract or shake a hand to make a deal, the, what they would do, they would, they would agree on the terms of the covenant and they would walk through the pieces. You can see that. It's illustrated in Jeremiah, I think it's, I wrote it down, 33, Jeremiah 34, 18 illustrates this. And that's why it's always called cutting a covenant. Uh, and so to make a covenant, I'm getting way off his you have to walk through the pieces together. If Miss, me and Miss Judy are going to make a covenant, we would come and we would cut these animals apart, put them side by side, and then she and I would agree on the terms of the covenant and we would walk through the pieces. And what that said was, if I fail on my part of the covenant, let me be split open like these animals. That's basically what it, what it meant. Well, God, when He made the covenant with Moses, Moses, He said, Moses, bring me some animals. And Moses, not Moses, Abraham. When God made the covenant with Abraham, he, he in Genesis 15, you can go read this, he, all that happened exactly like it was supposed to. He had Moses split these animals in two, put the pieces, and then God put Abraham to sleep. And it says a darkness came over Abraham. And then in the middle of the night, it said it was God as a firing, a firing, uh, a smoking pot and a fiery furnace together walk through the pieces alone. And so God walked through the pieces by Himself without Abraham. So what it was, the signal was, He was making the covenant based completely on Himself. There were no stipulations laid on Abraham's part. Does that make sense? Y'all are with me? It's like, um, it's like if I were to make a covenant with Jimmy and say, Jimmy, I'm going to, I'm going to save you and bless you. Okay? I'm just saying... And Jimmy, you have to do you know, X, Y, and Z. You have to keep this law and that law and that law. And right before we signed the contract, I changed the terms so that he didn't have to do anything. He has no part to fulfill in this contract. I'm going to do all this for him, and I'm going to, I'm going to swear by myself that I'm going to do this for him. Does that make sense? And that's why it says, if you have two people that are, mediating, that are making a covenant, you've got to have a mediator, but... God is one, and that's what he's talking about, is God made the covenant all by himself with Abraham. And so there's no stipulations laid upon Abraham. There was no, and that's in Genesis 15. Go read it. It's very, it's very, it's really instructive for all of the Christian life. I know I'm getting way off course, but it's uh, it's important. Does that make sense? Any questions? Sure. I feel like that was very confusing. Was it not? Y'all are all lying. All right, let's hurry up. We'll get done. 21 says, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. 
The law was never intended to give life. It can't. Why cannot the law give life? Why cannot the law? Why can't the law give life? It's time for you to answer. Because it only reveals what the problem is. If you kept the law perfectly, could you have life? We can't keep the law. That's why you can't keep it. But if you kept the law perfectly, would you have life? Jesus yes. Okay, somebody says no, somebody says yes. What's the right answer? No. Why? Because there's nothing in it. There's, there's no life in it. It's just rules and regulations. That's true. And it's just me doing something. You have to have, that's right. You have to have two things to go to heaven. You have to have never messed up, never broken the law, but you also have to have done everything perfectly. Okay? If I just keep the law and don't mess up, all that does is give me a clean slate. I got to have righteousness to enter heaven. And what gives me righteousness? Jesus. Jesus. That's why Jesus lived. Not only did he not break the law, he did everything perfectly. He never sinned and lived his life, the life that he lived up until the cross, by never committing a crime, never sinning, but also always doing what the Father intended him to do. Not only did he shun all the bad, but he did all the good. And so it's his life imputed to us. When when I stand before God, he doesn't just see a blank slate with no sin. He sees the life that Jesus lived, the perfection of Christ. Does that make sense? Y'all with me? What? You look like you want to ask something bad. No. No, no. But you asked the question, even if we kept the law completely and did everything right, would we because you know, because of the original sin, we're born with sin already. So we're already discounted. That's right. That's right. You're born and that's a that's a strange topic. We'll have to get on that one of these days. You're born with the sin of Adam imputed to you. And what we need is to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So we'll we'll get to that. We don't have time. Oh, it's we only got five more minutes. Let me get to the end of this deal. We've already read the last two verses. So it says, But the scripture hath concluded all under sin. That's everybody, Jew and Gentile, that the promise of faith of Jesus, promise by faith of Jesus Christ may be given to them that what? Who is the all? Scripture hath concludeth all under sin. Who is he talking about there? He is talking about all, but what? Jew and Gentile. That pretty much covers everybody. You're either Jew or you're Gentile. So, how, to answer your question, Miss Barbara, how are the Jews made right with God? It says that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, here's what the law does. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up, in the, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. How is the law a schoolmaster? It gives us a set of rules that we're supposed to somehow try to go by even though we can't. Yeah. The, the purpose of the law is to remove all your hope. 
It's to leave you... You ever had... This morning I preached a sermon in Isaiah 1 where it was just bad news. I mean, over and over and over and over. And the purpose of that is so... What Isaiah was trying to do was remove all their hope. Remove all hope. Remove all thinking that I'm good. Remove all thinking that I'm righteous. Remove all thinking that I can do anything or that I am anything or that I'm worth anything. You just get all of that out of the way. All of that gone. And then what do you do? Then you'll see the only lifeline that there is, the only door that there is, and that's Christ. And that's how the law is a schoolmaster. It's a guardian, so to speak. It's a, it's a tutor. It teaches you that you cannot come to God except by this one doorway. And so what it does is it goes around. It's like you're a child sitting in the middle of a room and the law goes around shutting all the access doors. You can't get this way. You can't get in this way. You can't get in this way. And it goes and it teaches you how low we are. It teaches you how sinful we are, how righteous God is. And it basically just blocks every way that you could possibly think you can get to God until finally it shows you the one way that you can. And it that's how it kind of pushes you toward that one thing. Because it's like a... Uh, I saw one time this is a bad example, but I get halfway into these things and it just comes out. Um, the like a like a, a, a mouse in a in a in a maze, and they teach him how to run the maze. They shut the door when he gets there, so he'll go a certain way. And that's like that's like us trying to get to God, us trying to run to God. We'll say, "Well, I'm doing good, I'm doing good," and the law will come and it'll shut that door. You can't get that way. And then it'll come and it'll shut this door. And it'll shut that door. And it shuts you up. It imprisons you into in the thinking that you're good enough or worthy enough. It imprisons you under the condemnation of the law. So that the only avenue that you have, the only way that you can get out of that prison of condemnation is the one door that's been provided. And that's Jesus Christ. And that's how the law pushes you toward the Savior. Does that make sense? Questions? Alright, last, last verses. It says... But after that faith has come, now he's talking to these Galatians who are wanting to go back to the prison that they just came out of. He says, after the faith has come, after you've gotten out of the prison, after you've gotten out of the condemnation, he says, uh, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. There's no longer the law saying to us, you can't go that way, you can't go this way. We've come out of that prison and we understand that we can only be justified by Jesus Christ. We can only be justified by grace through faith. And so he says, verse 27 says, or 26 says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking to both Jew and Gentile. You are all the children of God. You are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And the point he's making, and we've already read the last two, there's no more Jew or Greek. The point he's making is, why, when, when you were imprisoned under the law in that condemnation, and the law pushed you towards Christ, and you came and you accepted Christ, and received the salvation and the freedom that Christ offer, offers, why are you going back to the same schoolmaster that showed you the way out? You're going back as a as the child to sit back in the room and learn how to get to God when the schoolmaster, so to speak, has already showed you the door to get there. You're going backwards in your faith instead of forwards. You're going back to imprisonment instead of staying out in the light and freedom. He's saying, look, you have been, you were under the law, which means under the law means you thought that justification came by law, that 
You could do something to earn your salvation. He says, you were under that law until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, you're free from that. You're not under that schoolmaster anymore. Why in the world are you trying to go back to it? What's the application for us? So many of us, when we come to faith in Christ, it's good for a while because you realize you're worthless. You realize outside of Christ you're worthless. But in Christ... I'm clothed with Him. It says that you've put on Christ and I'm perfect in God's sight. But what happens when you do bad? You start thinking, well, God don't love me anymore. God hasn't, He's forgotten me. He's whatever. You're going back into the schoolroom. You're going back to to your other master. You've come out, faith in Christ. No, that doesn't bother me. I don't know why it bothers y'all. Why are you going back to the schoolmaster? What happens when we do good? Like these Jewish guys. God's proud of me today. No more than He was yesterday. It takes away all your hope in yourself. And then you gives, gives perfect hope in Christ. That's a great way to put it. It's a great way to end on it. Everybody understand? That's what the law is for. Does it mean that, hey, it's okay to murder and kill and steal now? No, we're going to see that next week that now we're not under the law sitting under a schoolmaster. Now the law is written on our hearts. And a changed heart causes us to want to do the law. Not in order to gain from God, but because He saved us. Make sense? Let's pray. Lord, we love You. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your Scripture, God. We pray that You would be with us as we, we just try to walk these things out. Go with us into service, God, and help us worship You in spirit and truth. Give us ears to hear. We love You and we praise You in Jesus' name.